All right, welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. We are on season six, episode four, Scavenger. Oh, this was intense. Super intense. I, she's going to get to the chaser. I'm going to dump it on you and then I'm going to mentally dump it out of me. I took a video of a guy's hairline because it moved really funny. (gasps) So did I. (laughs) You did? Yeah. Okay. I knew I, I was like, I wonder if she's clocked that as well. And I'm like, of course. There she was did. no way you weren't gonna notice this guy's fucking wig shift. <laughs> Opening scene. Two people are running in the park. The dude is lagging behind. This chick is running and smiling somehow. She's like, this is the best day ever. And he's like, oh my God, I think I'm having a heart attack. And she's like, it's a fucking cramp. Just keep on going, baby. She says, rest is a four letter word. And then I say to myself, "Mm, listen to your body, says the gal that ordered wings and pasta two nights in a row. (laughs) If I, you know, if I listened to my body, it would be like, why are you doing this? (laughs) As I shove more garlic bread down my fucking gullet. Okay. But you know what? All of that can exist. I don't know how I don't know how anybody smiles and runs at the same time. I, I know. really tried. I really tried for Me a too. hot minute to that. be like running. People say that they like it and people get a high from it. And I'm going to no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As they go down this little hill, the guy is like, hold on a second. She's like, come on, Phil, or whatever his name is. He's like, no, there's a fucking baby in a stroller with a note taped on him, bitch. Not mm-hmm. fucking doing anything. Don't shame me. Don't fucking shame me. And she's like, okay. cool, you check it out. I'm going to run in place. <laughs> she's like, you probably put the baby here just so we would have to stop and rest. It's not a baby. It's a water bottle. Ugh. <laughs> and a hoagie. <laughs> Is that mac and cheese? Is that a brick of salami? (laughs) So this fucking baby's crying so hard. The woman asks if the baby was abandoned like he fucking knows anything. Right. But the note says something way different. Now it's a crime scene, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Now it's a crime scene. (laughs) There are responders and SVUs on the scene. People always wonder why SVU on a scene, but they also do like little kid baby stuff too. Yeah. That sounded weird, but you know what I mean? Like if there's a missing child or... Yeah. Kids are special. Yeah. Benson and Stabler are told that the baby's mom was abducted. Oh my God. Every time. Who told them? Horse cop? I don't know. I didn't mean to sound like that. Ryan, whiskey in a jar, (laughs) O'Halloran. He's heading up the scene. Oh, okay. I never know who he is. Oh my God. I called him hot cop. Hold on. So... There are drag marks in the dirt by the path. Benson thinks the perp or perps must have had a car waiting to snag her. So O'Hanoran or whatever the fuck his name is finds smaller footprints nearby along the path and there's shredded underwear. Responding hot officer, that's the O'Hanoran, in the scene, mm-hmm. his face looks like the guy from American Psycho at the time. Did you notice that? He had like his hair all quaffed. It was interesting. His hair always looks great, but... yeah. I don't know who he is. I cannot uh, see him. In Gabe's defense, there's friends of mine that she has met, like childhood friends of mine, multiple times and still doesn't know their names. So I'm like, oh, yeah, Megan. She's like, who's Megan? And I'm like, popovers. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the other one? The curly hair? Beth. 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 Yep. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Beth was over for the weekend. You're like, who's Beth? And she always asks so aggressively. Like, she's annoyed that I'm not yes. prefacing with who this person is. I'm no, like, I'm annoyed that you're hanging out with another friend. That's the oh. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> like, who the fuck is Beth? I'm like, Beth. And you're like, who's Beth? 
And I'm like, Beth, she's Andy's sister with the curly hair. Oh, curly hair. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, who's Andy? Popover's husband. Popover's husband. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why. So he says it was a super sharp blade that cut up the underwear. He thinks maybe a box cutter. They're thinking it was a rape. Duct tape was also found. Corner Warner has the baby. He's a little hungry, but he's doing totally fine. He has no signs of physical trauma, but she's going to take him to the ER for an exam anyways. A hot Irish cop guy says that the note was duct taped to the kid, probably the same tape that was used to bind and gag the victim. The note was also printed off a computer, and it was signed Rupert Daniel Kilmore, and it's a fucking poem i know it reads the mean mean man has a monster in his head find him by tomorrow or my mommy will be dead fucking walt whitten over here oh my god this is some fucking incel Mm. i identify as the joker fucking yeah trope Mm -hmm. don't wake the wolf or whatever and you're like what wolf when we get into this chaser, I was going back and forth about it being appropriate because I'm like, oh, this guy was really scary and terrorizing people and like killing people. But I'm like, but he's such a fucking dork, too. Oh, yeah, I want to highlight what a fucking dork this guy is. Absolutely. Like, not even to, like there's there's yeah. not a word that it's just like, I gave myself a nickname because I'm fuck you. Yeah. Fuck. OK. <sighs> yeah. It's like, wow. Mm-hmm. Anyways, theme song. In the precinct, the gang goes over the details. Cragen wonders if the perp has an issue with all mothers or just the one that was abducted. Munch wonders when the deadline really is and when the countdown started. Is it midnight tomorrow or midnight tonight? And this made my fucking ADHD brain fucking collapse and crawl into a corner. Right. Mm -hmm. At best, they have 13 hours. Cool. Great. Right. Stabler says the prints on the stroller don't match anyone in the system. Toots says that there's nothing in missing persons. And Stabler says if there's a husband, he might not know until he gets home from work. So all they have is the stroller and the baby. So they're going to use the gift registries, my mortal enemy, apparently, that have listed the stroller the baby was left in. Craigan wants them to get the baby's photo out in the media as a found baby, but with zero details. Toots says that the only prints on the note are from the jogger who found it. Munch says that the only Rupert Kilmore in the area is in Staten Island. And I'm like, obviously, this is a pen name because Kilmore, like, come on. Mm. But let me find out it's a different whatever. But they got to yeah. go check it out. Over at Kilmore Time Sales and Repair, this guy's taken full advantage of his last name because he calls Mm -hmm. his watch and clock business Kilmore Time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Guilty. Guilty. Immediately. (laughs) Yeah. They always do that. They throw in somebody that is like absolutely the person, but isn't. I have have a murder-based name and watch and clock business, and I make terrible jokes. Benny and Stabes find this dude fixing a watch, and I hate him the whole time. (laughs) Benny's like, you got a sec? And he's like, 60 every minute. Jail, prison, execution. I don't want any more. That's straight to it. They show this guy the note with his name on it, and he insists they have the wrong Rupert Kilmore. And he's like, based on this, I'm actually Rupert Kill Less because... (laughs) (laughs) That was the last straw. They take him in. He didn't say that, did he? I wrote that. (laughs) No, he didn't. (laughs) Oh, God. The phone rings, so they don't take him in. That That was a hilarious addition to the script that i gave the phone rings it's a call from a man wondering if the cops were at the shop and rupert tells him yeah and the person hangs up rupert tells the detectives that the man on the phone told him to tell them the facts and they're like okay what are they and he's like i don't know anything and benson goes what you mean facts 
F-A-X instead of facts. Just as the fax machine starts printing off a message. I'm so glad we did that. That makes it even more puzzly. Mm -hmm. So here's the message. It's another low poem. Once there were some cops so dumb, it took them hours to get clue number one. Mommy's running out of time, so the answer is written above the rhyme. This is like Saw and a Wisconsin Dell's escape room all at one time. <laughs> Saw and dude, where's my car? It's, <laughs> it's just terrible. <laughs> well, above the rhyme, the header of the fact says Jiffy's Copy Center. Fucking wheels up. We got to get out of here. <laughs> Bye, you fucking dork. Actually, you're just you're just having your silly little business. You're just a watch guy. You were so yeah. excited when you came up with the name of your business. Tasha, let people have things that bring them joy. Detectives run over to the copy store and ask an employee about the facts. This kid in a 2004 Justin Timberlake ramen noodle wig looks 18 if he's a day. This is the kid. With the hairline. When they walked in, he lifted his eyebrows and his entire scalp moved an inch and a half. I mean, it was the biggest shift I've ever seen. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm so glad that you recorded that so, as well. <laughs> yeah. His IMDb headshot, though, it's so weird because it's been 20 years, but now his headshot is like a 65-year-old professor. Like, he looks super distinguished. Hmm. So they're like, what about this fax? And he's like, oh, was there a cover sheet? There wasn't one. And he tells him that a thin black man that seemed really antsy sent that fax. He paid and left without waiting before it was sent. The employee tells Stabler that the guy looked unhoused and was wearing this ratty old overcoat. Mm -hmm. And immediately I'm like, this guy was obviously a pawn. Mm -hmm. One woman speaks up and says she passed him as she came into the store. He was headed toward the alley. Benny and Stabler, boop, go out to the alley and find an older black man sitting on the ground. They draw their weapons and ask him, where is she? Right. He says that they must be the cops that he was supposed to wait for because he sent the facts for some dude. This guy is not clear-headed enough for their urgency. So good thinking, Stabler. Let's shake the shit out of him and yell in his face because that's going to help. Right. He tells them that a guy held a knife to his back, gave him 20 bucks and made him send the facts. And he was supposed to remember to tell the cops some kind of clue or riddle. Mm -hmm. But he keeps nodding off and they're like, come on. Stabler digs through the trash and pulls out half a candy bar and Benny makes the guy eat it. You can't I'm like, come do on, that. You, guys. you can't do I know. that. You wouldn't just be opening up trash. But like, you don't know what the. F oh, my. That's OK. Like, but he nods off and Benny's like, he needs sugar. I'm like, do you think he's a diabetic or do you think he's an addict? You don't know. You're going to shove it. And they're like, here's half a Snickers right on the top of this fucking trash. OK, there's never been a half a <sighs> Snickers anywhere. You know what <laughs> anywhere. I mean? Nobody leaves a half a Snickers anywhere. Yeah. So I hate this. We hate this. Mm -hmm. The way they're treating this guy is gross. And then the way they continue to treat him. Let's go to the precinct. Mm -hmm. I know. They're like, The man up. from the alley has been brought in for questioning. And he found the words. The clue was hog, pat, mend, top, yarn. They had questioned this guy for fucking eight hours and he hadn't given anything else. This is this is all he was able to give them. He's in a fucking cell. Like, why? Yeah, they can't figure it out. But by all means, keep treating this guy like shit. Mm -hmm. They like tell him to shut up. He's like, I told you. And he's they're like, shut up. And I'm like, what the fuck? No, give the guy a blanket and a meal. Yeah. A place to rest. Maybe his brain will kind of. Yeah. And like treat him like any other fucking person that's giving you information. Right. Well, this guy was held at knife point. I know. We all know this is terrible. 
So a guy named Eric Liebert is waiting for Stabler in the lobby. He's the father to the baby that was found. Mm. This dude looks like Zach Braff and Patrick Dempsey mushed together. He's been in a ton of stuff. Weed, Sopranos, 30 Rock, Mad Men, Veep, The Leftovers, mm-hmm. like a bunch of stuff. The baby's name is Timmy. His wife is Julie. Stabler lets him know that Julie was abducted and takes him over to the detective desk. As they're walking back into the desk area where all of the lights are off. Okay, so they're like standing around this desk. Cragen's telling Olivia to get CSU over here now. Mm-hmm. And Cragen's about to shuffle the husband slash dad Eric away when Eric looks on the desk and goes... That's my wife's earring. Is that her fucking ear? Cut to a small box with a bloody chunk of an ear in it Mm -hmm. sitting on the desk that they, whoa, 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 weren't able to avoid letting him see. And the dude starts panicking and Toots pops up to take him to Cragen's office. The ear was dropped off at the front desk and it was addressed to Cragen. Munch continues to study the message from the victim slash witness who's being held in a cell in the fucking precinct Mm -hmm. and tells them to look at the return address on the package the ear was in Mm -hmm. the return address was the series of words that the man who was helping but being held like a suspect said it was Mm -hmm. fucking cow horn hog 30 rock yeah what was it hog pat men top yarn a new poem was sent with the ear julie was so sad to hear you were late keep us waiting again she'll meet a much worse fate so munch thinks that the series of words that the guy gave were an anagram and he was correct Mm -hmm. rearrange all the letters in these words and it's payphone mott grand so go to the payphone at mott and grand Mm -hmm. intersection Benny and Stabes get to the corner with the payphone and they notice all of the windows that are overlooking where they're at, which give a point of view for someone to be watching them. Benson doesn't find anything in the booth, but on top is an unmarked envelope with another note. You're running out of time. M-M-C-X-X-X-I-I. So Stabler's like, oh, those are Roman numerals. I think about the Roman Empire a lot. Anyway. (laughs) And Stabes is like, military time. I was a Marine. 2132, which is 932 p.m. It's the time the call could have come in on the payphone. They missed the call by an hour. So Benny picks up the phone and puts in whatever, the operator person, and she's like, I need a dump of all the fucking calls made to this phone, specifically 932 p.m. Cool, we can get that information. They've got 90 minutes to find Julie. Oh my God. Benny and Stapes bust into an apartment, guns drawn. There's a congratulations banner hanging in it. The lights are flickering and there are studio lights set up everywhere. Julie is hanging with a sheet wrapped around her and her mouth is duct taped shut. The note reads, sorry, you are too L8. Whatever. It's like, you're too late. Consolation prize inside. Unwrap and enjoy. Ugh. They were 45 minutes late. Stabler's like, oh my God, it's not her fault that we were late. They take this sheet off Julie, written on her stomach, RDK is, and it's an arrow pointing to her back. This means that the RDK killer is back. He's active again. But the clockmaker guy has been monitored all day and he hasn't moved, so it's not him. What the fuck is this? He's just been happily fixing watches in his little shop. Thinking of different puns. His little Geppetto yeah. shop. He's building a wooden boy <laughs> clock. Toots asked the game. Someday I'll be a real watch. <laughs> <laughs> I love when you do that whistle S. I can't do it. Hmm. Someday, someday. I Toots got no strings to hold me down. <laughs> Toots asked the gangs if the Vic is missing any fingers. She's not. 
but he found fingers on a pillow in the bedroom along with the card. Fun, fun, fun. Let's play again. For the next feather in my cap, check the policeman's helmet. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? This whole thing is very Dexter. Yeah. So back at the precinct, the gang goes over the new details. Cragen says RDK was a serial killer in Manhattan in the late 70s, early 80s. And then I was like, um, why is he just bringing this up now? But then I realized they didn't know that RDK thing until they found the body. Mm-hmm. Cragen worked on the cases. He had just made detective. All except one of RDK's six victims were raped, dismembered, and killed. RDK. Yeah. So it's not Rupert, Daniel, Kilmore, Watch and Company. Right. It's yeah. his M.O., Jeanette Henley was the sixth victim. She fought and got away. She didn't get a look at RDK because he had a ski mask on. Stabler says that serial killers don't just stop. They either die or get caught for something else. I know we're talking about this really serious thing. I am so distracted this episode by Stabler in this Hanes Heather Gray long sleeve crew neck. He wears it the whole time because they don't change or sleep or anything. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I was really into it. it. It just looked really good on him. I didn't notice, which is weird. You didn't notice? Mm-mm. Mm. I just think he always looks good. Maybe that's why. I don't know. I don't know. There was something about it, and I liked it. Sleeves push up and all that stuff, you know? He had the sleeves down. He pushed the sleeves up. He was It was very versatile. Mm-hmm. And it was crisp at first, too, which I, I really enjoyed. Okay. Yeah. I'm. It's starting to sound creepy, so keep going. Sure, sure. Craig wants records pulled for men arrested after Jeanette's attack and got paroled in the last six months. Toots wonders if they're dealing with a copycat, but Craigan says that RDK used to leave letters and riddles for police with a distinct mark that was never released to the public. The same symbol was found on the note that Toots found with the fingers. The first victim in the 70s lost an ear and was hanged, like Julie, the victim earlier with the baby in the park. The newest victim, Gloria Durham, is the owner of the loft Julie was found in. Gloria is a 35-year-old single mom and a freelance photographer. She didn't show up for a photo shoot at 6 p.m. yesterday, but did make the 5 p.m. appointment earlier in the day to meet with a man named Eddie. Another appointment with him was found in her date book a week before for consultation. Cragen wants them to track him down. Munch is at a computer. He wants to know how the first original second victim died. Cragen says she bled to death after being stabbed over a hundred times in four days. Jesus Christ. Right now, Gloria could be getting tortured. They're trying to figure out which cops wear helmets. Like, duh, horse cops, but... Munch figures out that the policeman's helmet clue is talking about a flower... Craigan thinks they want them to find this flower. Because there's a flower called... The policeman's helmet. Policeman's helmet. It was so cute. The way Toots... They were like, policeman's helmet, blah, blah, blah. Toots is just like, police don't wear helmets, they wear hats. That's right, Toots. (laughs) They do. Uh Let's see. Police's uniforms aren't green, they're blue. Yeah. It's true, buddy. (laughs) You got it, Ice. (laughs) Police don't wear helmets, they wear hats. (laughs) Somebody give this genius a fucking juice box. (laughs) Good job, buddy. Here, this is a special pin from the captain himself. Oh, my God. I thought you paused because you didn't laugh after my juice juice box thing. And I thought it was really funny. But then I then you moved and I was like, oh, my God, she didn't pause. It wasn't funny. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I did have I had a thought. I was like, do I make a juice box joke later? I make some sort of or or maybe I thought it during this thing because you said it and I scanned my notes in my head for my juice box joke. Hmm. So I forgot to laugh because I was was so busy. I forgot to laugh. (laughs) 
Benson says that the flower market would probably know who buys that kind of flower. Craigan's like, well, it's 4 a.m. They should be opening now. <laughs> okay. And then I was like, what are we in fucking Holland in the 1700s? That's exactly. No, I was like, is this actually I, I didn't think that I'm thinking it right now. Like this is New York City. There yeah. are there are bur- it's not just one city. It's multiple boroughs that make a city and they're all like their own little city. I mean, the, the amount of people in two blocks is like an entire country, basically. Mm-hmm. But the flower market is this Bell's Village in France. I need police helmets. Oh, it's Bell. Bell buys these flowers. The baker came for flower. Not that kind of flower, Kilmore. <laughs> now we're at the florist. Betty and Stabes are trying to talk to the guy at the shop, but he is stressed out about a wedding at three. And he says he cannot talk and walks off demanding Raul find his fucking baby's breath now. He's wearing an ascot and is basically the character Cam from Modern Family. He's that gay trope. He's, you know, yeah, he's, he's, he's doing the birdcage. Um, yes, I was going to say he's a he's what's his name? Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane. He's doing Nathan Lane and he's not mm-hmm. channeling it. Very who well, but. Nathan Lane also does a character in yeah. Modern Family named Pepper, who is very similar a, to that. A florist, right? Who's like, are you fucking insane? And has the guy he's like, like a wedding flower. flower yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Stabler's like, stop and gets his attention. Because everybody loves a loud, hot man, I guess. They ask if uh, we do. Fucking God. Yeah. They ask mm-hmm. him if he's gotten any orders for a policeman's helmet. He had gotten one that morning and it was paid for with a credit card. Stabler's like, great, pull that shit up now. The flowers were paid for by the victim Gloria Durham's credit card. And the order hasn't been delivered yet. Benny and Stabes stand at the delivery address. It's a vacant lot turned community garden. Not a residence. All of the flowers had been pulled up. They go into the shed where they find all the flowers in a pile and they're covering Gloria's body. She's dead with multiple stab wounds. Stabes is pissed because they were supposed to have more time. This guy's not playing by the rules. Mm-hmm. He's a murderer. He's a murdering psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Another clue is drawn on the bottoms of her feet like... um little pictures and stuff. I'm sure we'll find out. It's a riddle, basically. It could be a map to another dead victim. They also find today's paper in Gloria's hand with a note from RDK that says, B3, question mark, exclamation point. How many women do I have to screw to make A1 above the fold? Which is, he can't believe he wasn't on, like, front page page headline news. Dude wants to be famous. So give me the attention I'm looking for. Benny Stabes, Corner Warner, and a few dead bodies are in Corner Warner's office. Corner Warner says that the two new victims had not been raped. Rape, dismember, kill was his MO 25 years ago, but a lot could have changed for him physically in that time. Mm -hmm. There was semen found back then, but no DNA testing. And they didn't keep any samples, I guess. I think it's wild that they kept any samples like that and and kept them for so many years and not knowing that there was going to be dna testing later not knowing about science coming yeah gloria was stabbed 132 times like the original second victim from before in the 70s but gloria's throat was slit and the stab wounds were inflicted post-mortem he could have used a scalpel staves thinks he might be switching things up to throw them Mm -hmm. they're gonna pull the original case file and interview jeanette RDK's surviving victim. Mm. In the apartment of Jeanette Henley, 
Jeanette is a smartly dressed older lady. She reminds me of Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank. Do you know who I'm talking mm. about? Mm -hmm. The short haired blonde lady. She's telling the detectives her story. She says that a knife was stuck in her throat and she was drugged into an alley and raped. He was telling her how she was going to die. He had gasoline in a soda bottle that he started pouring on her. And mm. she grabbed the bottle, splashed it in his eyes, and ran away. She knew it was RDK when three days later she got a poem in the mail Ugh. called Ode to the One Who Got Away. Mm. He had her purse with everything in it, her ID, her house keys. She moved that day and is still scared that he's going to find her. Oh, poor lady. I know. I mean, that was 25 years ago. Like, ugh. they tell her that RDK has resurfaced, which makes her start panicking. Not in a hysterical way, but like a trauma response, calm like, kind oh of way. Like, oh my God, I, I knew it was coming. I knew he was going to come get me. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, okay, yeah, what do I do? I've been preparing for this. I've been on edge my whole fucking life for this moment. Mm -hmm. And she's like, okay, I've, uh, I got to know what I got to do here because you guys found me. The reporter found me. So, of course, this guy's going to find me. And they're like, the reporter? She goes, yeah, this dude came and interviewed me for the 25th anniversary of the murders. Mm. Benson says that she never saw that article. And Jeanette's like, you know what? Come to think of it, neither did I. She still has the card he gave her. He was polite and told Jeanette that she reminded him of his mother. She had shown him the poem she got from RDK during the interview. The card is for Blaine Lawson from the New York Examiner. Jeanette's mm -hmm. going to go stay with her sister in Queens while these guys go and fucking figure this shit out. I feel like if the guy knew where she lived, he's going to know she has a sister in Queens. I know. I'm surprised they weren't like, we'll protect you. Right. Cabot comes out of a plant from behind her. <laughs> She's just a fern wearing glasses. <laughs> She's saying, like, we, we can't afford it, you guys. <laughs> And then she goes back into witness protection. <laughs> at the newspaper office, Benson and Stabler are talking to a main editor dude at the paper. Oh, this guy. You know, he says Blaine Lawson does work on the paper. He scream responds to them. He's like, <laughs> yeah, we got a Blaine Lawson on staff. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Rewrite that. It's crap. That's a, like while he's talking to. I'm a newspaper guy. You see this pencil behind my ear? <laughs> it's been there for 40 years. <laughs> So they got a Blaine Lawson. Yeah. This guy tells Benson Stabler that Lawson always brings him the fucking stories and he is rad. Stabler tells him that Lawson was working on an RDK paper and the guy's like, oh, he never told me that. <laughs> the editor calls him over to speak with Benson Stabler. So Lawson is black. <laughs> he's just he's like Lawson. He stands up from like 30 feet, like 10 cubicles down. Yeah. Yeah, boss. <laughs> Stabler's like, what? That's him? It's like, never mind. Yeah, so they're actually looking for a white guy, mid-40s, short, pasty, thick, black-rimmed glasses. I'm like, oh my god, this sounds like my type. <laughs> Just kidding. Not really at all. It's the George editor Costanza. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, don't! I'm getting ready for soup season or whatever it was. <laughs> oh my god, now we're fucking doing Seinfeld. Okay. The editor says that it sounds like a researcher that works down in the, quote, morgue named Humphrey Becker. These pretzels are making me thirsty! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so good. You're so good. I love you. <laughs> oh, I'm sweaty. Oh, mom's spaghetti. <laughs> why can't we think of our own funny things? Like, why? I don't know. I'm like, remember on SNL? And you're like, <laughs> so down in the morgue, Benson finds an exacto knife. 
that's used to cut shit out of the paper and it's stuck on a board with articles all over it. A woman comes by and asks if she can help them. She tells him that Humphrey is on vacation that week. Vincent asks her what he's like to work with. She says sarcastically, oh, a real inspiration. She tells him that he is a constant reminder to not get stuck down here for 20 years and calls him a miserable person that doesn't say shit, is always staring and creeps her out. Benson asks what he's doing on vacation. That's such a weird question to ask, by the way. Like, how would she know? She just said he's creepy and weird and stares all the time. She's like, hey, man, what are you getting into on your break? (laughs) Yeah. Fun. Anything fun and not weird that I want to know about? Big, long conversation about where. Yeah. She says he's probably just being weird and alone and working on his puzzle books he's obsessed with. Puzzles, you say? Oh, really? (gasps) Back at the precinct, there's a whole call center going on. Even Wong is there. Craigan gives Wong the rundown of the deets and the perp. Wong's like, yeah, he loves puzzles. And I'm like, cool, glad you're here. (laughs) 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 Like, usually he doesn't say something stupid, but whatever. Wong says that the puzzles give the perp a smug sense of victory and that he probably has low self-esteem and that by making the clues for the cops to solve, he's absolving himself of any responsibility for the murders. If they die, it's the cops' fault for not being on time not his. The music gets all Mm -hmm. swelly and Munch says, I got something. One of the drawings on the victim's feet is a skunk with smelly lines. Munch thinks that it means a scent. And then there's a picture of an oar, as in the thing you used to paddle a robot with. It's centaur. Center. Oh my god. I'm more like, it's a centaur. (laughs) I know, that's what I thought too. (laughs) The way that they go through, uh, whoa, whoa, figuring this out, they had it all written up on the board and they're all like puzzled staring at it and then all of a sudden it all comes together right okay munch keeps going there is some waves on the feet and it could be an ocean or a sea next to a drawing of a cross and i was like oh my god it's rock of ages that classic picture (laughs) wong says oh my god no that's not a cross it's a lowercase t and i'm like that's what i've been telling you guys forever (laughs) darla's like it's a cool sword (laughs) yeah it's a lowercase t it's seat you know c you're by the c And there's stick figures and stripes. Toot says it's a con. Wong and Kragen point out that with the drawing of chain links and then a drawing of convict, it means Lincoln Center. This is the worst puzzle thing I've ever... I hate it. I hate this fucking guy. Uh They got to pull some fucking manpower to search the thousands of seats in the Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. Cut to Benson and Stabler bust into Becker's apartment. They get inside and see that he has an extensive mystery novel collection because he's a fucking dork and he thinks that that makes him special. It doesn't. Everybody loves mystery novels and it looks like he steals from libraries and has humidifiers set up to preserve his stolen mystery novel collection. I don't know why I'm talking like this. I'm like mad. Okay. Letters from the publisher are pasted all over the walls of a room. They're all rejection letters. Letters. And funnily enough, all the closets have no doors. Hmm. Benson hmm. super insanely quickly finds one letter on the wall among thousands. I mean, it's wallpapered in there with mm-hmm. these rejection letters. And she's like, oh, my God, here's one. It's for a book proposal for a novel of art. <laughs> I can't. It's like... Oh, my God. A super bright yellow poncho that nobody saw when they're trained to do that. (laughs) Okay. But I found it. It's a rejection letter from two months ago. Whoa, 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 whoa. Our perp is a coin collector. Look at this quarter I just tripped over in fucking Times Square. (laughs) Tripped over. Whoa. (laughs) Kilmore pops in. He's like, did somebody say time? (laughs) 
God. I'm going to move in. I'm going to live under your bed. I'll just be like, good night, you guys. Ew, girl. So I don't want to hear fucking any of that. Okay. Anybody say time? (laughs) Okay. It's a rejection letter from two months ago regarding a book proposal for a novel on RDK. It said, at this time, we are only in the market for recent high profile cases. This guy is starting up the RDK shit. So it's recent, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. He's trying to get a fucking book deal. This guy's a piece of shit. Well, we all know that. In the precinct... Kragen gets details on Becker's apartment. Becker is pretending to be RDK. He could be out getting his next victim right fucking now. Stabler's like, we haven't slept in two days. And Kragen's like, I haven't slept since I graduated the academy in 1971. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we're tired. So Toots and Munch found the clue in the bathroom at Lincoln Center, which took them to a fun house on Coney Island. And then Toots says, which was anything but. That's what I would say all the time. Mm -hmm. Then to a book about the Dead Sea at the library, and a clue was found in the dust jacket that said if they found this clue, they deserve a reward, and the next victim wouldn't be taken till Thursday. They have four hours until midnight, then it's Thursday. The original third victim was a chorus girl. In the note, he tells them to take in a show. And they're like, take in a show? What time is it? The curtains just went up on a show. Like, there's a scheduled time. Munch points out that unlike the OG RDK killer, all of Becker's victims are mothers of little boys. Cragen wants them to go to the theater district and find dancers with sons. Munch notices that the original story on RDK was broken by someone at the paper Becker works at, which explains how he found Jeanette. The original reporter was Morty Graff. Cragen tells him to go find Morty. Munch will do it. So he goes to Conrado's Cigar Club and Lounge and finds Morty. This is Morty's third appearance on the show. The rewind on his acting credits is, it's just a cool timeline because it spans decades. So he's most recently in Wu-Tang and American Saga, 30 Rock, Nurse Jackie, Donnie Brasco, Escape from Alcatraz, this the guy? OG Starsky and Hutch. Yeah. Oh, shit. The Rockford Files. He was in fucking Serpico. Whoa. Decades and decades. I thought he long. was like hard channeling Mel Brooks in this. He could have been because, yes. But he Morty, could just be that guy because everybody was that guy during that time. You know? That's true. I described him as a George Burns type smoking a cigar indoors. Yeah. And he says he got all the scoops back then by working long, hard hours drinking with the detectives. Yeah. It was the generation that was like the first post transatlantic fucking accent. Yeah. And they were all doing like a New Yorky cigar thing. Mm hmm. Right? Yeah. Yes. God, I'm so smart. He was like the gritty side of that squeaky clean transatlantic vibe. God, did we just figure something out? Yes. (laughs) He got in close with someone from the Emmy's office back then, but he wasn't allowed to print the symbol found in the original letters. Munch asks about Becker, Morty's research assistant with the apartment full of I'm a serial killer paraphernalia. Mm -hmm. Morty says that Becker is unfortunately a member of the cigar club as well. He shouldn't be because it's supposed to be exclusive to published authors. But he lied about being published to get in and is always asking Morty about the RDK case details. Morty gets up and says he's got to go to his locker. And Munch is like, locker? Does Becker have one? And he's like, everybody's got one. Later, Novak shows up with a warrant 
to open the locker. I love how she like makes that a reference to like having to fucking break up that judge's poker game again. Oh, I know. She runs in. She did this in like 10 minutes. Munch barely had time to go to the bathroom and wash his hands. And Novak was already there with his fucking warrant. She's like, oh, my God. I had to go over to fucking Judge Terhune's poker game, which is always <laughs> happening. And I had to interrupt that again. Remember? Remember that? And they were all like, this isn't funny. It was uncomfortable for me. And Munch is like, yeah, nobody cares. She just wants a fucking thank you. But nobody gets thanked around here, Casey. Munch has been up for He's days. Like, oh, poor baby. I've been up for 48 hours. Yeah. And it's like, do you guys all have the monopoly on suffering? You fucking turds. Jeez. <laughs> I had to pop my head up so you heard me laugh at that. <laughs> I know. I appreciated that. <laughs> An employee of the club opens Becker's locker where Munch finds some journals. Novak and Munch start to look through them. And there's a lot of shitty book ideas in there. But then Munch finds a how-to book on being an RDK copycat, including all of the details about the first two victims. They then find details of who victim number three is going to be. It's a red-haired woman with a young son. Like, he's got this planned out. Mm -hmm. All right, well, backstage, fucking Broadway. Benson and Stabler find who is supposedly going to be victim number three and her name is red watts they tell her she needs to go get her son i love that we just were talking about the transatlantic thing and she's like hey fellas i'm red watts and i'm about to go on stage at broadway mm -hmm. they tell her she needs to go get her son and they need to get somewhere safe when shown a photo of becker she says she remembers him from the week before he was waiting outside the stage door for an autograph he had asked her about her son she's like oh my god is he okay and they're like dude we get just we gotta get you safe yeah so stabler's like you gotta go get changed we gotta get out of here and while this is happening benny gets a call jeanette never made it to her sisters fuck so they got to head back over to Jeanette's apartment. So Stabler must be taking Red to a hiding place. Yes. Uh, he also said that he mentioned he's like, yeah, we're going to go pick up your son and bring him to you and get you safe. Yeah. Just so yeah. everybody is not like, fuck your kid. It's just about you being safe. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they split up. Benson didn't wait. I don't know why she would go there by herself, but she goes to Jeanette's apartment alone. It's completely trashed. There's broken shit everywhere. So she calls for backup over the radio. The music isn't swelly at all, so none of us are nervous as Benny goes deeper into this fucking apartment, even though she could totally wait a second for the backup <laughs> that she just called. She police sidesteps into Jeanette's bedroom where we see a human-shaped pile of floral comforter on the bed. Mm-hmm. Like a fucking, like Ferris Bueller sneaking off for the day. It's yeah. so fucking... Benny rips the covers off and finds Becker hiding under the covers, laying there with his fingers threaded between each other on and his he's chest. he's like, hi. Whoa. <laughs> um, I'm going to finish this scene and then we're going to sidebar on this guy. But he tells Benson that he needed a place to stay since... They were all over his apartment. He assumed it was fine since Jeanette's place was dot, 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 vacant. Mm. Benson asks where Jeanette is, and he tells her mm, she's a little buried at the moment. Like, a total fucking creep. Nobody has time for this shit. Nobody has time for you. No. Nobody cares about your fucking hopes and dreams, guy. Like, <laughs> shut up. But it's like hanging on every word. This is... 
feeding everything that he wants. Okay, so this actor playing Humphrey Becker is Doug Hutchison. He's had many iconic roles in movies from the 90s, A Time to Kill, Con Air, The Green Mile, but who fucking cares? He's a predator. In 2011, he got Courtney Stodden's parents to sign a legal consent form so he could marry them. Hutchison was 51 and Stodden was 16. They divorced in 2020. Stodden, who uses they, them pronouns, has since come out and spoken really openly about their experience. kind of remember this. Oh, yeah. We've touched on it before. Courtney Stodden, you said? Yeah, that's how I found out they use they, them pronouns because somebody reached out because I was using she, her pronouns and talking about them. So they divorced in 2020. Firstly, when they initially got married, we all treated Courtney like shit and slut shame them when they were a child being manipulated and abused by the adults in their life, not protected by the other adults in their life, being fucking groomed by this 51-year-old dude. Mm -hmm. Hutchison also wrote a memoir after the divorce, and I was so deep in a rabbit hole, and I read a bunch of excerpts. It is an incel handbook. It is so fucking pathetic and embarrassing and gross. The memoir that Doug Hutchison wrote after the divorce with Courtney Stodden. It's just like why Hollywood's not fair, naming all of these actors that aren't as good as him, that were terrible to work with, and why they were terrible, and why they weren't good actors, and why they're... I mean, he's talking about, like, Samuel L. Jackson and shit, like, saying that these people are terrible and whatever. He's he's a jealous little fucking incel. He's disgusting, and he's not that great of an actor. The book is called Flushing Hollywood, Fake Boobs, Fake News, a memoir. Wow. Mm-hmm. He's a fucking douchebag. It made it really hard to enjoy the rest <gasps> of this episode. He was that shitty... Yeah, I don't know much about that, but now I'm going to look into it. He was in the Green Mile, right? He was like that shitty yes. fucking... He always plays a shitty little creep because he can't play that far from himself. Mm. Uh, but yeah. Okay. In the precinct, Becker has been brought in. Stabler shows up and Craig and lets him know what's going on. They're doing like a fast walk and talk. Everybody's trying to talk to him. He's just trying to get straight to the room because they don't have much time. Mm-hmm. Becker only wants to talk to a lead detective i love that stapler was like what about olivia Craigan's like nope he won't talk to olivia because he wants it to be quote man to man okay then olivia screams i am no man and stabs him (laughs) in the face and he implodes lord of the rings i don't even think that part was in the books but whatever (laughs) was it in the movie was in the movie yeah, it was really know. cringy because she goes, I am no man. And they goes, ah, and it makes this weird like stabby face. And I'm like, oh, it was a cringe <laughs> part. Benson says that Becker bought an oxygen tank on his credit card like just a little bit ago. Becker buried Jeanette alive with a tank with 15 hours worth of oxygen in it. And it's probably about half gone. Huang is outside of the interview room. Huang lets Stabler know that victims four and five are safe and tells Stabler that, wait, don't go in. We need a game plan. And Stabler says there's just no fucking time. Stabler goes in the interview room and asks Becker where Jeanette is. He had his head on his arms like he was sleeping and was like, oh, uh, what? Oh, geez. Um, is it true? Only the guilty sleep? And Stabler says, yeah. And Becker says, well, I guess you got me. Shut up, nerd. <laughs> like, he's oh. such a fucking dork. Yeah. He checks the time on his little pocket watch. And he's like, oh, geez, look at the time. Stabler tells Becker he hasn't slept in two days. And Becker says, I know, but wasn't it fun? And Stabler's like, dude, no, nobody cares. You lost. And then Becker says, and yet, and yet, and yet. Where in the world is Jeanette? God, this guy fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. Just fucking 
Like, crack his neck and be done with it. Who wants to deal with this shit? <sighs> okay, Stabler tells Becker that he guarantees he's going to tell him where Jeanette is. Becker's like, yeah, right. You can't play a bad cop without a good cop here. I'm a big fish. And he's positive the whole precinct is watching behind the glass. Then goes over to the two-way mirror and tells him that if he's stuck in the room, so is Stabler. And if anyone comes in or out of that door, the game's over. And Stabler's like, okay, I'll play. Becker says he's the final clue, as in himself, and asks Stabler if he thinks he is smart enough to get it out of him. Becker then tells Stabler he knows every trick in the book because he's written 27. And Stabler's like, yeah, I know. I saw the rejection letters that papered an entire room in your stupid apartment with your stupid books you fucking dork <laughs> becker gets visibly irritated and says i think i'll take a nap oh, like, fuck off stabler gets a call it's from wong but he pretends it's calf <laughs> he's like yeah right my wife wouldn't call i haven't seen her in four months <laughs> wong thinks becker wants to get caught because he craves attention and recognition dude's been a loser his entire life and belittling yeah. him will only make him shut down stabler needs to play into becker's vanity and then becker's like oh my fucking barring you <laughs> and gets mad that stabler took a call and tells him to turn off the fucking phone so then stabler kind of very obviously turns nicer which would have made me be like, I see what you're, I get it. <laughs> Stabler starts to talk to Becker about the books and says that Becker misunderstood what he said about the rejection letters because it actually takes a lot of time and effort to write 27 books. Becker falls for it and is like, yeah, yeah, it does. Stabler calls the whole thing that he cooked up, quote, clever. And Becker is like, yeah, right. More like brilliant. Stabler tells him that the RDK book will be a fucking bestseller, but he can't profit from the crimes, you know, because of the Son of Sam law. It just means that if, uh, the criminal that if they write a book, you can't profit from it goes to the families or something like that. Yeah. Becker's like, what? I don't care about the money. What he wants is to prove everyone wrong. He wants to be a legend. Stabler says it's going to be a bestseller because serial killers are very popular right now, slash forever. Becker says that'll show her, then corrects himself and says, um, them. I mean, <laughs> Stabler notices this and responds, her? <laughs> her? Becker continues, them, those small-minded publishers. Stabler wants to know who her is. Becker won't tell him. I guess you'll have to buy my book. Stabler asks him why he skipped the chorus girl and went straight to Jeanette. Becker replies, because you guys were ahead of me. You figured out who I was, so I had to jump ahead to Jeanette. She was RDK's original sixth victim that got away. She eluded him, but not me. Stabler's like, well, she's fucking 65 years old. So not that hot, bro. <laughs> like you're not fucking she's mid at least <laughs> no i don't mean her i mean I he's just like he's like yeah she couldn't evade my amazing fucking abilities rdk sucks but i rule that's not the flex that you think it is brother <laughs> yeah she's an older woman it's been 25 years like yeah. You're not crushing it in the way that you think you are. Becker looks at his little clock and says, not looking good for 66. Fucking asshole. He's not mm. saying shit to Stabler. Mm -mm. Stabler's phone starts vibrating again, which really pisses off Becker. Hot. <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's a 911 call from my wife. Okay. The Kathy line isn't going to work again, right? It's, yeah. It's not even Kathy. Oh my God. It's Benson. He's not going to be sitting with a fucking serial killer who was just like, you better not fucking answer the phone again. He's like, yeah, but my wife, my wife wants me to pick up milk on the My wife. wife. <laughs> my wife. And the dude's like, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> 
but it's not Kathy, you guys. It's Benson. She tells Stabes that she talked to Novak. If Becker tells them where Jeanette is, then Novak's going to take the death penalty off the table. Mm-hmm. But while Benny's telling him this, he's still on the phone with his wife. Uh-huh. So into the phone, he goes, oh, I don't think so. You know, I don't like to let the kids get away with things like that. All right. Boop. And hangs up. You're not answering the phone for your what? It was just. Yeah. You should have waited when Huang was like, we need to come up with a plan because you pretending to care about your wife calling tricks. Nobody. Well, it's funny because this guy that says I know every trick in the book doesn't seem to know any tricks in the book. <laughs> you no. know what I mean? And immediately stumbles the first time. He's like, that'll show her. And he's like, what'd you say? Did I say that out loud? Becker's pissed and says, it's a phone rings again. The game is over. He's threatening him the way I threaten my children. He's like, you better not answer that phone again. If that phone rings again, this is the last time the phone rings. And he's like, one, two, two. Do you hear me? I'm counting. Screen time's over. (laughs) Stabler's like, takes his iPad. Nope. No more Minecraft for you tonight, buddy. (laughs) Stabler's like, okay, dude, you win. And it's thundering and lightning raining outside. It's very intense. This whole scene is very, very intense. Stabler relays what he got on the phone from Benny. If Becker gives up Jeanette, he's not going to get the death penalty and he can give that to him in writing. Mm -hmm. Becker makes a psychotic but good point and asks, well, what if I tell you and you find her, but she ran out of oxygen and she's dead already? What about that? Like, is it still on the table then? Guy. So this opens up the conversation to talk about how much time they've got. Yeah. There's technically about four and a half hours of air left in the tank but it's likely she's breathing heavier so she'd be using more air than normal because she's panicking yeah Mm-hmm. Stabler tells him there's no reason for him to do this to Jeanette and Becker goes on about how scared she must be I wonder if her eyes have adjusted to the dark and she can see the oxygen gauge going down Stabler twitches <laughs> a tiny bit and then full Zsa, Zsa Gabor open hand slaps Becker across the face <laughs> like it was amazing. Also, Stabler going in there, Huang calling him and being like, Stabes, you can't get mad and be crabby at him. I know he's really irritating and you want to throat punch this guy. And that's what you always do, no matter what. But you've got to pretend that he's super cool and interesting. <laughs> yeah. You need to be in there stroking his ego. And Stabes is like, got it. Hang up. The guy's mildly irritating him. And he's like, Whoosh. yeah. And that's when I thought, isn't Stabler supposed to be going in front of the board for straight up shooting? that perp just like five minutes ago remember when he busted into that room yeah. didn't even look around and shot and he's like here's my gun i know the drill i killed a guy just now but uh no jeffrey has lost her job for having mm. sex yeah cool 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 cool, cool, cool. Uh, anyway he tells becker he better tell him what's up or he's gonna choke the fucking life out of him they're nose to nose just spittling yeah. into each other's mouths and dude's got his hand up like oh, i wasn't expecting this at all like what oh man you're not supposed to hit me Steve's like i'm gonna fucking choke the shit out of you and becker's like do it he's like Stabler fucking chokes him into a headlock mm-hmm. he's like you're gonna tell me where Jeanette is you freak Craig and Huang bust in the door to pull Stabes off of Becker. Craig and pulls Stabler out of the room and Stabler's like, let me at him. Live five minutes with them. Come on. Cha-cha-cha. And Huang stays behind to talk to Becker, which 
kind of should have been the original thing happening. Yeah. Becker tells him, oh, he brought in help. Game's over. Mm-mm. I'm taking my ball. I'm going home. And Huang tells him, actually, he didn't break the rules because we came in and he didn't ask us to come in. I'm a doctor. I'm here to help you. Right. So Becker's like, yeah, I guess that's true. He didn't, whatever. This is a very, this kind of serial killer thing where it's like, these are rules. This is whatever. So Huang fucking whoop, whoop. All the tricks in the book. Didn't catch that one. So Huang's taking the guy's vitals. He's like, are you okay? He's taking his vitals. He's got his hand on his wrist and starts asking about Jeanette and if she was dead when Becker buried her and shit. And Becker's like, no, she was still alive kicking and screaming yeah huang tells him he believes him and that's when becker pulls his arm away and tells huang he knows he's using a poor man's lie detector test you trying to interrogate me detective because he's taking the pulse and he's asking him questions while he's doing it like it was because he's, he's it's an old he's taking method. the pulse he's doing he's the th- things he's taking the pulse he's uh he's feeling he's like oh boy he's looking at his eyes looking at his pupils oh boy <laughs> his heartbeat's accelerating and i can tell with my fingers <laughs> I don't know if I love us or hate us. <laughs> Can it be both? I think it has to be, yeah. Um, so he's like, hey, give me my wrist back. Are you trying to interrogate me, detective? And Huang's like, I'm not a friggin' plebass detective, dude. I'm a doctor with the FBI and flashes his badge, which was hot. Mm-hmm. This gets Becker interested, asking if Huang was brought in to profile him. Oh, God. You know, he's like, wow, wow, FBI. For little me. Yeah. <laughs> what are they saying about me? What are you like getting? It's your vibe. What am I like putting mm. out there? Like, can you read auras? I bet you mine's like, oh my God, should green. we do my star chart? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So Huang knows how to play this game. Mm-hmm. And he's like, there's a whole team looking into you, buddy. <laughs> this gets Becker excited. What are they saying about me? Mm. And Huang goes, oh, um, they think you're impotent. <laughs> no. It's like, not me. I don't. I told him probably not. I totally don't think you have a soft dick, buddy. You have the hardest dick ever. They said that, and I was like, you sure about that? This guy's a <laughs> goddamn walking hard on. I've never been more sure of anything in my life. She's <laughs> third leg over here, this guy. That's how I do my job. <laughs> That's why I came in and talked to you. Because I was like, you guys are wrong. This ain't no squishy dick dude in here. This guy is awesome and fully erect. <laughs> <laughs> Dick for days. Is your middle name Richard? Is it? Is it Richard? <laughs> uh, Becker is already offended and says, why did they say that? Why did they say that? When he said why, he pronounced the H really hard. Why? He goes, why did they say that? <laughs> Wong tells him it's because he mimicked RDK but didn't rape the victims. But Wong totally gets that too, bruh. Like, This makes so much sense. You didn't do that because it would have been like having sex with your mom, dude. You targeted women with sons and told Jeanette that she reminded you of your mom. Mm. You never hurt the little boys because they were innocents, you know? Mm. Oh, this is where I made a juice. I was like, we pan through the glass to the other side where Stabler is sitting in the calm down corner with a juice box. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So we pan to the other side. Benny's going to go see if she can find Becker's mom. We can still hear in the room where Huang tells Becker about his rage against women, but how he identifies with their sons Mm -hmm. and goes, what did your mother do to you? (gasps) 
Becker's mom, Ida, is brought in. She's wearing a plastic hat. She's adorable. I know her. I just don't. Tasha, you probably did all this. This is iconic actor Anne Mira. Archie Bunker's place, Rhoda Elf, King of Queens. She's so recognizable from her decades-long career. She was married to Jerry Stiller. This is Ben Stiller's mom. And so she oh. also made a ton of cameos mm-hmm. in Ben Stiller's stuff. And she yeah. passed away in 2015, RIP. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Ida tells them that they must have the wrong person. None of this could be her Humphrey. Her son was destined for great things. She named him after the legend Humphrey Bogart. She hadn't seen her son in over 25 years. They had a falling out over a scandal. Ida was working two jobs to put him through journalism school. He plagiarized his thesis and was fucking thrown out of school. And she's just having these chats with the detectives like it hasn't been 25 years. Yeah. She's seen her son. It's really weird. They're just really trying to get her into into the interview room. She's like, oh, okay, yeah. Right. So she's brought in. Becker's like, whoa. She sits at the table with her son. Wong sits down too, and Stabler hangs out by the door. Ida asks him what he's done to his hair. It's so weird because the way she talks to him, it's like, you haven't seen him in 25 years and you're going to like start ragging on him immediately. It's super weird. And then you kind of like get get what's going on here mm-hmm. not that it's her fault no but the she can also be a bitch it's the ed kemper of it you know yeah it's the relationship with the mother part yeah i mean lots of people have shitty relationships with their mom and don't do this stuff just saying right she tells him about how when he was little and how his hair was so curly and blah 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 and he's like i'm in a fucking police station why are you talking about this he tells her that the detectives aren't interested in his childhood but wong's like ah, but we are actually i'm super interested yeah becker asks for a little bit of time to be left alone with his mom and stabler is like that's not part of my rules tough stuff (laughs) next (laughs) tough double stuff oreo shut up (laughs) shut up nerd nerd (laughs) ida goes okay humphrey tell him where you put the lady becker tells her to fucking stay out of it you want to know where janette is ida in a lonely place ready for the big sleep referring to Bogart's films, mm-hmm. she's pissed. She's like, how dare you disrespect Humphrey? She's like obsessed with Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. He tells her that she'll be really proud that one of the aliases he used was Eddie Willis, another who was from Bogart's last role or whatever. Ida says, you're a disgrace to his name. And she's like really obsessed with Humphrey Bogart. Stabler tells Becker, why don't you tell your mom what you've been up to? Then Becker replies, why don't you shut your damn pie hole? <laughs> Got him. Sick burn, dork. (laughs) Rejection letter number 28 up on the wall. I'm sending this joke back. Mm -mm. (laughs) Yeah. It's been rejected. Ida tells him to watch his language. And even when Bogart played a bad guy, he never used that kind of shit. He never worked blue. I don't know what that Mm -mm. that meant. Oh, working blue? Yeah. Um, It's a term used. Terrible example. Cosby was known for never working blue. And he always talked shit about like Eddie Murphy works very blue. Blue just means that you use foul language and Uh. adult humor. He never worked blue. Never heard of that before. Becker goes, sorry, Ida. I didn't mean to disappoint you yet again. Ida replies with, I should be used to it. And she's so embarrassed. She had such high hopes for him. He was supposed to be somebody. Now he's in a fucking police station. Becker goes, dude, I'm sitting right here. I can hear you. He tells her that he did what he did for her, that he will be famous like she always wanted. Happy now, Ida? 
Mm. Ida says, you were never anything but fucking trouble. Huang and Stabler are fucking just loving this. Oh, they rolled in like the full old-timey popcorn machine. You know, the one on mm -hmm. wheels? <laughs> yeah. Shh, don't mind us. They're turning the little crank. <laughs> Huang asks Ida if Becker was a difficult child. She tells him that she couldn't take him anywhere, not even to the movies. He would throw a tantrum when the lights went off and was totally afraid of the dark. She would leave him at home locked in the closet so she could go out to the movies. That way he wouldn't hurt himself running around the house. That's why his closet has no doors. Then she goes, he'd get so worked up that he would soil himself. Oh, it was so fucking weird. Becker is grabbing his fucking head and screaming and begging her to shut the fuck up. He gets so fucking pissed. You can see Stabler behind him ready to grab him. He lunges at Ida, shouting that he will kill her and starts calling her a fucking bitch. Stabler grabs him and he's like reaching for his mom. And she goes, oh, see how he treats his mother? And I'm like, just 25 years. Like, Stabler drags him out of the room and he's fucking clawing for his mom. Becker goes, where are you taking me? And Stabler goes, my game room. Benson knows what Stabler is doing and opens a closet door and smashes the light. I mean, she could have unscrewed it, but that's fine. There was no time. There's no time. Stabler drags him into a closet. Benny and him are keeping him shut. He's banging on the door. Stabler keeps saying, where's Jeanette? And he's just like, oh my God. Ah! Craigan comes over and says, I thought you could use this. And it's a key. So they don't have to keep holding the door shut and they lock it. Finally, Becker tells them that if they let him out, he'll let them know where Jeanette is. And they're like, nope, you gotta say where she is first. It's not the game. It's not the game. It's not my game. It's my game room. It's my time. My game room now. <laughs> he tells them that she's in a dump in Staten Island. Please let me out. And Stabler says, Jeanette first. And Benson and Stabler take off like the wind. Craig is <laughs> gonna call ESU. At the dump, Jeanette is found in a fridge with a chain around it. The guy that was unlocking it with the chain locker mm -hmm. cutter thing stabler was behind him like they were like he was teaching him how to play pool and helping him did you notice that <laughs> no oh god he's like there's no way this guy will get it i gotta go directly behind him and put my dick on his butt and help him fucking <laughs> she's alive barely breathing the o2 is almost out she keeps saying over and over again, he found me. I knew he would. He'll get out. I know it. He'll never stop till he gets me. Benson and Stabler tell her that she's safe and that Becker will never fucking get out to find her. Toy fucking Yoda. Okay. I hard binged BTK Confessions of a Serial Killer on Hulu for this. Mm -hmm. With all the shit like this that I watch and the fact that I already knew about this guy, I was surprised by how much it scared me. I had a little trouble sleeping last night and double checked with John that our security system would still work if the power was turned off or if the line was cut mm. because... Yeah. It freaked me out. Does it? Does it Does it have like a little generator somewhere? If the wire gets cut, it immediately contacts the police. Oh, okay. Like it contacts everything. Like it immediately contacts. Yeah. Yeah. It's whatever system. It's a, what's it called? It has a backup to a backup to a backup system. Is the line somewhere outside? Um, no, but like if the power goes out or. No, I mean like if it, do you know where, what can, it get, where can it get cut from? Well, I, I don't mean cut. I mean like cut off. Like cut oh, like, okay. not okay. like physically like somebody comes with little scissors i'm talking about That's like I thought. if the line gets cut like if the is, th is that not what that means because i always thought people were like snipping wires i mean back when people had phone wires and shit there was oh, okay. a straight up cord that was on the side of people's houses and shit and they would cut the actual wire but you never like put those in like metal tubes on the side of the house instead of just i don't know 
the power went out recently and it was like this huge alarm started going and it was all fucking crazy. And Darla was like freaking out because it was all it was bananas. Mm -hmm. This documentary that I watched, it's a documentary series. Have you watched it? BTK Confessions of a Serial Killer? I don't know. When's it from? Uh, last year, 2022. Oh, then I don't think I have. I haven't seen that one. Okay. It Maybe. focuses on his crimes, but through the eyes and communication with Dr. Catherine Ramsland, who is studying him to further understand and broaden our knowledge and like law enforcement knowledge of the mind of a serial killer in hopes mm -hmm. that future investigations don't overlook possible suspects because they don't fit into the serial killer. Certain. Yeah. box right the profile it's extremely interesting she's written a ton of books she's amazing but she's in direct contact with him it's a really interesting hmm. um series but is he still also, alive uh, i didn't realize that yes Shit. also any conflicting information i found because always when there's a huge story uh that's kind of everywhere there's going to be conflicting information which of course i found i deferred to the doc series because this doctor has done actual deep research and mm -hmm. not the rest of us research. Oh, sure. Okay. Google. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get going. I'm going to tell you about Dennis Rader. Dennis Rader was born on March 9th, 1945 in Pittsburgh, Kansas. He was the eldest of four boys and grew up in Wichita. By all accounts, including his own, he had a good childhood, good parents. He called his dad his hero. He has said that he harbored some resentment over feeling ignored by his busy mom, but by all means, become a serial killer, Dennis. Like he, he said, he's like, he had a good childhood. It's not every serial killer's experience that that, you know, that's one of those misnomers yeah. about, quote, every serial killer. As an adolescent, he had a vivid and active fantasy life. He was playing games that we all played with neighborhood kids, cops and robbers, um, the wildly problematic cowboys and what we called indigenous people at the time. Oh, my God. Uh, I totally was thinking about that. Uh, I was thinking about that whole so thing. Like, I had a I had a 90s theme party that was that when I was like six. Mm. The cowboys were always the heroes. Like, it's indoctrination and fucking whitewashing. And when you know better, you do better. And here we are. Mm -hmm. But yeah, fucked up. Mm -hmm. So they would play these games. And these games usually consisted of opposing teams. People get captured and tied up and pretending and whatever, shooting out, whatever. The difference that Dennis noticed was that the getting tied up or doing the tying up parts were sexually arousing to him. At a very young age. Also, without going into detail, he abused farm cats in ways that would carry over into his crimes. I'm not going to mm. talk about it. A dominating teacher at school was the subject of his first fantasies of a person. So there was one particular time he was watching her through her window and he was engaging in voyeurism super early on. He tied himself to a fence outside, fantasized about torturing her and came to completion for the first time. So that is his first wire connector. Mm -hmm. Like the first time he had that kind of response was to that. Mm -hmm. So it really set some shit in stone. He also had a very specific core memory of his mother that stood out a lot to him. She was cleaning the house and reached under the couch and got her ring caught. She was in a bit of a panic and called for young Raider to get his dad because she was trapped. And she's like, oh, my God, my fucking ring's stuck. Help me. And she was in an awkward position, so she couldn't really move. And he realized he was turned on by this, the panic that she seemed to have, the fact that she was restrained. These instances between the teacher window thing and this thing with his mom seemed to be a big part of the base for everything to come. 
Hmm. When he was 14, Raider and everyone else in the state of Kansas heard about the murder of the Clutter family. Two newly released prison inmates had wrongly heard there was a safe full of money at this farmhouse. So they went there and killed everyone, but only left with petty cash and a transistor radio. There wasn't a fucking safe there. And this really resonated with Raider because the family was bound with rope, which was heavily in his fantasies. Mm -hmm. And not only in that instance, but this is around the time he became infatuated with other serial killers. What they were doing was obviously appealing to him, but also the recognition they got. He first got really into Harvey Glattman. That was his first big Mm. one that he deep dove on. He was a serial killer out of California and we've talked about him. We actually did a series of intermissions in season one with our Mm -hmm. friend Shelly and Glattman was focus of one of them. So check that out. But Harvey Glattman came up pretty hard in some of the shit. So she tells the story of that fucking guy. Mm -hmm. His shit was he would pretend to be a photographer and lure women looking to be models. I mean, Raider can't get enough of taking in information about these people. It wasn't called true crime at the time, obviously, but... Glattman, he would tie them up, right? Yeah, he did. Mm -hmm. Also, consuming all of these stories confirmed to him what he wanted to do as well. He wanted to be famous, and he wanted to be a serial killer and be known for it. After graduating high school, Raider served in the Air Force from 1966 to 1970. He moved back home to Park City, a suburb of Wichita, and soon met Paula Dietz at his parents' church. They got married with plans to start a family. At one point, Dennis was so excited because he got this job building planes at Cessna or building engines. He was super pumped about it. He was really proud of it and enjoyed the work. So when he was laid off from that job, he was devastated. Mm -hmm. And he used that frustration to justify breaking into his first home. So at first he was doing his voyeur shit, watching women, fantasizing, but knew he would eventually escalate. Dennis Rader was 28 years old when he committed his first murders. He had spent about two months watching Julie Otero. He first noticed her as she took her kids to school and became fixated on her. Hmm. Rader had planned to kidnap Julie and take her to a secluded barn where he would eventually hang her. On January 15, 1974, Rader cut the phone line and entered the house when nine-year-old Joey was letting their dog in from outside. Julie's husband, Joseph, wasn't supposed to be home that day, but he was, along with two of their five children, 11-year-old Josie and 9-year-old Joey. He took the family to the bedroom at gunpoint, tied them up, suffocated, and strangled them. Josie was later found hanging from a pipe in the basement. Oh my god. Police also found semen on and around her half-dressed body. He took a few items, uh, what he called tokens, which were usually items like jewelry, women's underwear, and lingerie. This first time, though, he also took a radio in reference to the clutter murders that had influenced him so heavily. Mm. He left and went back to his life as a husband, churchgoer, community member. He called the switching extremes of his personality cubing. Interesting. As in like he's a cube. One side is the father, then the husband, the community member, stand-up guy. One of those sides was the dark side and he could flip into whatever he needed to be for the situation. Mm -hmm. So if he's the father, the husband, this stand up member of the church, whatever, the dark side is on the other side of that cube. You can't Mm -hmm. see that side. Mm -hmm. That side doesn't exist in this reality. Mm -hmm. So in his mind, they're very, very separate things. He had a ton of names for different shit that he did, like the cubing, the whatever. I'll get more into it. This guy is so fucking irritating to me. I gotta watch this. The base of his personality. I 
know the focus is he's a psychopathic, narcissistic serial killer, but like his general way of being and the way he talks about shit is so pathetic and I hate him. He's just as irritating as the fucking serial killer in this, this episode. episode of SVU. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like, oh, dork. Shut up. Yes. yes. Yeah. That same year, Catherine Bright was 21 years old. She was a student living alone. Raider was going to school at Wichita State University at the time as well, majoring in what? Administration of justice. He watched her for about a month to learn her patterns. She came home every day in the afternoon around the same time. So he decided when he was ready, he would break in and be waiting for her. On April 3rd, 1974, Catherine's 19-year-old brother, Kevin, spent the night at her place so they could go shopping together the next morning. On the 4th, they went shopping, and when they came back to Catherine's house, Raider was there. Mm. He wasn't expecting Catherine's brother, so he tied both of them up and put Kevin in one room and Catherine in another. He doesn't care about Kevin. You're tied up. You're not my focus. I've got a one-track mind. This is what my focus is. I'm going to tie you up, and that's that. Kevin was able to get himself out of the ties, wrestled with Raider for the gun. It went off. The bullet hit Kevin in the head. And he collapsed. Thinking that Kevin was dead, Raider went back to torture Catherine in the other room. As soon as Raider realized Kevin was still alive, he went back to shoot him again. Mm -hmm. Then again, going back to Catherine, this is my focus. He's dead. Good. All of a sudden, Raider hears Kevin run out the front door. Realizing he now had limited time and strangling Catherine was taking too long, Raider stabbed her, killing her before he fled. Kevin Bright gave a description, so Raider's face was out there, but no one ever made the connection. Initially, the Oteros and Catherine Bright weren't linked. These were two separate investigations. The MOs were different enough. They didn't see enough similarity to connect the two. Mm -hmm. Raider saw these things going wrong, Kevin being there, Joseph Otero being there as bad luck, like he was a victim somehow. Then there were arrests made in the Otero murders. Instead of being relieved to be under the radar, Raider was pissed that someone else was getting the credit. He had this arrested development, this childlike need for attention. So he needs this credit. He can't let it go. He can't be cool with being in the wind, you know? Yeah. It was part of the objective, getting the credit. Yeah. In October of 1974, Raider called the Wichita Eagle and Beacon newspaper and told them there was a typed letter related to the Otero case on the second floor of the public library in an engineering book. The police were immediately called and a detective went and retrieved the letter. Mm -hmm. It was this big, long letter, but it started off with, quote, I write this letter to you for the sake of the taxpayer as well as your time. Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and with no one's help. There has been no talk either. Let's put this straight. Then he goes on in full detail of the crime, what he did to each member of the family, their injuries. It was all super intimate knowledge that only the perp would have. Yeah. They didn't release this fucking information. He closes this letter with a P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O. or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK, you see me at it again. They will be on the next victim. He named himself like a fucking dork, gives himself his own nickname. Yeah. You guys are going to call me BTK. That's my nickname. This is my (laughs) fantasy. Yeah. They should have mixed the letters up so that it would piss him off. (laughs) Yeah. 
that's why I refuse to call it. I'm like, you're Dennis Lynn Raider from fucking Wichita, Kansas. Okay. I'm calling you Dennis. You're Dennis you Raider. <laughs> D-nasty. You fucking call me BTK. Fucking. Dude, call me, call me Blazer, dude. Such a fucking... Is that all very scary? Yes, it is. Just the the dork fucking energy around how bad he wants to be this thing. He wants to be in this club. Well, he is. He is. He is. Mm. And he is a terrifying psychopath. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to give him that, though, because he likes it. You know what I mean? I had no idea he was still alive. I guess sometimes those like old serial killers are mythological almost because it's like... Mm-hmm. so fucked you know you're like that yeah. person's not alive i know a lot of this was happening so recently that i'm like not the crimes but the you know when he was caught and everything this letter this crazy letter of like hey i'm gonna kill more people i'm a fucking serial killer police withheld the information from the public mm-hmm. at the time they were concerned about people freaking out yeah but he had sent this he called the fucking newspaper Yeah. He's like, I got this letter. He's waiting to see this run in the paper. And it never did. So this thing that drives him, that would drive him, he's got another cool name. He called this feeling, this thing that made him do these sexually based crimes, Factor X. Oh, my God. People who use X as a thing. I'm talking about you fucking Twitter. Elon Musk. Yeah. Fucking shut up. Factor X. It was like a way to not take responsibility and simultaneously make him special. He has this thing that others don't. And it's a very special thing that people like myself and Son of Sam and fucking these people have Uh that drives me. It's not me. And it's like, okay, well, you're not fucking special and everybody hates you. Yeah. And I bet all the other serial killers would hate you, too. Meanwhile, on the other side of the fucking cube, he and his wife had their first child. I wasn't ju- that wasn't supposed to be funny. I know. I know, but it was. <laughs> oh, I was not making a joke. Just in his other life, in his other existence, he and his wife had their first child in 1975, their son, Brian. He started working at a security company. Mm. He was the supervisor for home security installations. So there was a little break in his activity. Mm -hmm. He said it was because he was too busy with this other part of his life to be out killing people. So what he was doing instead was supplementing with stealing stockings and things like that from the homes of clients. Like he'd have to go into these people's houses for the security company and he would steal shit, lingerie and shit. Mm -hmm. Also with this job, he was really able to stalk, observe and monitor people throughout his entire criminal career. He called them projects or PJs. He would name each one. And he described it. He said, I did it like the way someone names a boat. For example, he initially had targeted Julio Otero, who was Latina, and he called that Project Little Max. He would name it based on a place he first saw them or something. He was never not invested in a project. He had also kept journals, drawings, hit kits full of shit he used in his crimes. And he kept those in what he called hidey holes fucking everywhere, Mm -hmm. all over his house, in his shed, but also all over Wichita. Another interesting and not right thing that he did because he couldn't be fully hunting people at this time Mm -hmm. He would cut out pictures of models out of um, magazines and shit, uh, like the eyes of one woman and the mouth of another. And he would create 
a face of this person on a three by five card. On the back of the card, he would give her a name and personality traits, you know, things she liked and things she didn't, whatever, like a fucking Playboy centerfold kind of situation. Mm -hmm. And then he would spend time hanging out with these fantasy characters. He would drive around with a three by five card in his passenger seat and fucking talk to it like it was a person and then go home and take the card in the shower and masturbate with it. The most bizarre thing about him as a serial killer was the hiding in plain sight Mm -hmm. in that the perception of him was so, 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 so different, which now we look back and we go, oh, yeah, we've all seen fucking Dexter. We've all seen fucking, Mm -hmm. you know, these shows where people are like, well, I better get married. I'm, you know, fucking whatever. This guy had a whole other world in his mind. He cared about his family and his kids Mm -hmm. and his community and these things were important to him. Can you imagine being the child of somebody like that mm. and like learning that and like not being able to believe it for a little while and then believing it and just being like, what? You know, I mean, it's yeah. Like my dad is this hardworking, great dad. He's an elder at the church. He's all these different things. This is like me finding this out about my dad. Mm -hmm. So on March 17th, 1977, he was ready to follow through on one of his projects, Project Green. He got dressed presentably like suit jacket and briefcase and knocked on the front door of this person in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. This woman wasn't home. He always had multiple projects in the works and he was dead set on killing someone that day. So he moved right down the street. It was like right around the corner to the home of Project Blackout. She wasn't home either. Jesus Christ. Still laser focused on his plan, Raider spotted a little boy walking down the street and decided that his mom must be home. That boy was six-year-old Stephen Ralford. His mom, Shirley, had sent him to the store to get her some soup because she was homesick that day. Raider stopped little Stephen and showed him a picture of a woman and a child and asked if he knew them. And Stephen told him he didn't, sorry, and continued walking home. 15 minutes after Stephen got home, Raider knocked on their front door. When Stephen answered, Raider pushed past him, pulled a gun, and locked Stephen and his two siblings in the bathroom with a blanket and some toys. Hmm. Stephen watched through a crack in the door as Raider taped his mom's hands and feet behind her back, put a plastic bag over her head, tied it with a nightgown, and left. Stephen smashed the door until he broke a hole in it to get to his mom, but it was too late. 26-year-old Shirley Vianne was dead. Shirley's murder put BTK back on the police radar. His MO was very present in this case. Shirley was bound with very specific knots called clove hitches tied to the bed and semen was found near her body. The police were still no closer to catching him. So he's not he's not raping these women, right? He's like Oh, no, he's not. Okay. That's that's another super fucked up thing. He makes this point in this phone call with the doctor from this doc series and he's like I never raped a woman, ever. They found semen on the scene, but they never found it in anybody. I would never rape a woman. I would never do that to someone. And it was crazy because she's talking about it, you know, to camera and she's going, he's talking like it's this moral high ground that he has that he would never do that. Mm-hmm. So Even fucked. though there's sexual gratification involved, he would never do that. Not realizing that murdering someone is the worst thing you can do to a person and their family. And there's no coming back from that. He didn't. I don't know. Um, I don't know if you should say that. That No, that's what she said. Oh, oh OK. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not here to gauge What's the worst thing that you... What's the worst thing that can happen to to a person? But yeah, his perception was just on everything is 
super fucking skewed and very tailored to his focus. Yeah. Later that year, he happened to see Nancy Fox walk out of her house and put her on his list of projects. On December 8th, 1977, Raider broke into her house and was waiting for her when she got home. At first, he told her, quote, this is what he said to her. Hey, I'm just a strange dude. I'm going to do some stuff with you. And if you cooperate, I'm out of here. He let her have a cigarette and they talked for a bit while she's smoking. And then she's like, all right, let's get this over with so I can call the police. He took her to the bedroom, tied her up. And once he had her secured, he whispered, I'm BTK. I'm a bad dude. He told her that he had killed the Otero family and then he strangled her with his belt. The next day, Raider called police from a phone booth and let them know they would find Nancy's body at her house. Mm. There was semen found on a nightgown on her bed. So Wichita police, remember, were keeping the fact that there was a serial killer in the area close to the vest. Bringing in the FBI would have been super cool, but, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Raider wanted that public recognition. He wanted the attention. So in January of 1978, he sent a poem to the Wichita Eagle about the murder of Shirley Vian. And heard nothing, heard nothing for a month. I'm wondering if it just wasn't direct enough or if they weren't like, this is from the person who killed her or whatever. I'm not sure why, but this is when he sent a letter into the local television station, K-A-K-E, they call it Cake, Cake TV Channel 10. He went on about the seven murders he had committed for pages and pages. He drew a diagram of how he left Nancy Fox's body and he ended the letter with, quote, how many people do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper? Mm, just like, yeah. Yes. Oh, they pulled a lot from this. Cake ran the story that night and had the police chief on, but he didn't have any leads to report. They had done so much voice analysis on that phone call and couldn't ID him. Like that was a risky move for him to mm-hmm. call and say, hey, you're going to find a dead body at this address. But it led nowhere. So now Raider's got the recognition he's been wanting and has the whole city in fear. Meanwhile, he's in school studying criminal justice, which all just helped him become better at evading police. So he's sending these letters. He's wearing rubber gloves, typing them, Xeroxing them, then sending them out. Because, of course, he kept a copy. You know, the the letters he would send would sometimes be cut up around the edges. And he only did that just in case he maybe touched it. He was so meticulous about Mm -hmm. leaving evidence or leaving a trace of himself. Obviously pre-DNA because his semen was regularly found at crime scenes. In November of 1978, police had traced his letters to a specific copier. So he's got this Xerox copy that he's sending, but they could analyze it and see exactly what copy machine, like find the copier that it was coming from based Mm -hmm. on the lines on the paper or how the tray was or what the fuck ever. So they traced his letters to a specific copier in the basement of Wichita State University. Okay. So they knew there was a connection there. They said this publicly. So after that, Raider would Xerox his letters, then Xerox the Xerox at multiple places before he would send it. Then Raider got really busy with his other life again after this. Paula had just given birth to their daughter, Carrie, and Raider graduated from Wichita State. So things were dormant for a long time and Wichita kind of settled down. Raider was traveling for work at the security company that he had been working at. And then in his job at the Census Bureau, uh, he traveled to different states for that job. Mm -hmm. During his travel is when he would have what he called motel parties. 
he would take a suitcase full of his shit, his tokens, binding tools, camera equipment, all this shit. He'd have a lock on the suitcase, take that with him on his work trips. And when he would be at the motels at night, he would get dressed up in all the lingerie and underwear and tie himself up and take pictures. He would fantasize about being the victim in the murders that he committed. Being tied up or doing the tying were both things for him. There were no murders for seven years. Until mm. he had made his neighbor, 53-year-old Marine Hedge, a project. Aww. He's a Cub Scout leader at this point. Oh, God. On April 27th, 1985, he takes the boys out for a camping trip, which is a perfect alibi. He gets camp all set up and makes an excuse to run back home for something in the evening. He goes to Marine's house, cuts the phone wire, and breaks in. He hid in the closet as she came in with a man she'd been dating. She'd been seeing this guy. He didn't live with her or anything, but they had been out on a date. They go back to her place. Good for her. He's just sitting in the closet waiting and watching for a couple hours before this guy leaves. When Marine's date left and she went to bed, Raider came out of the closet and killed her. But he didn't leave her there. He took her body to Christ Lutheran Church, where he was the church president. He had keys to the building and had stashed materials there. He posed her and took photos of her before disposing of her body and heading back to camp. Jesus. Days later, her body was found in a remote area. Police didn't immediately connect her murder to BTK, not with the slight change in MO. And Raider didn't reach out to the press or police about it either, which was intentional. Marine was his neighbor. She lived on his street. Like the last mm. thing he wants is fucking cops sniffing around a few houses away from where this woman But lived. he like also does at the same time, you know? It's like. But he also does. But yeah, he was in control of when and where he decided to be risky. And he decided mm -hmm. that wasn't going to be the deal. Nothing came of that investigation, right? So he's stalking again. He's trolling and finds 28-year-old Vicky Wagerly. He watches her on his lunch breaks for a while before making his move. On September 16th, 1986, Raider's dressed up as a telephone service employee. He's got a hard hat and a tool belt, just a, a little costume. Because, yeah. I mean, the thread for him is that it's fucking fun. This is fun. This is fun. Mm -hmm. I got to shake it up, do something different this time. When he knocked on her door... She was immediately really wary of him and mentioned her husband would be home at noon, which was extremely close to the time that it was. Let's say mm -hmm. it's like 10 to 12 or something or yeah. who, who knows. Close enough that I'm guessing she was like, oh, do you want to wait till my husband gets home? Do you want to come back around? Her gut was telling her this, but mm -hmm. this was part of it for him. And he was too hyper-focused on his goal. So he eventually just convinced her to let him inside. Like, oh yeah, I talked to your husband and I need to blah, 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 whatever. He seems very normal. He pretended to work on the phone for a moment, but then as Vicky's toddler Brandon played on the floor and she turned to look at him, Raider attacked her. He took her to the bedroom where he bound her and tied a noose around her neck before shoving her under the bed. Shortly mm. after he fled, Vicky's husband Bill came home to find his wife in that state. And her heart wasn't beating. Mm. So he came in and he's like, my baby's sitting here in the living room by himself. Where the fuck is my wife? Mm. And that's what he finds. He called 911 immediately and she was taken in for emergency life-saving treatment, but then was declared dead 15 minutes after arriving at the hospital. Oh. And that was one that police didn't tie BTK to at all. Yeah. Bill was the main suspect. Her husband was the number one only suspect. Mm. And it couldn't be pinned on him. So they couldn't, they just never had enough to arrest him for it. 
but it was a common mm-hmm. belief that Vicky's husband had killed her. For years, this is what the belief was. On the evening of January 19th, 1991, Dolores Davis, she went by D, came home from a dinner date and went to bed. That same night, Raider was on a Boy Scout winter camp out. He snuck away after dark, you know, like kids mm-hmm. are in their tents and whatever the fuck. Yeah. And headed over to D's house. Like I said, she was already a project, so he had a plan. When he got there, Raider threw a cinder block through her patio door. And so she wakes up to this crash, comes out, and there's a fucking man in her house. And he goes, I'm running from the police. I'm not going to hurt you. I need to take your car. I'm going to take some money, but I need to buy myself some time. So I'm going to tie you up before I leave, which is like movie shit. Yeah. She's disoriented and is like, okay, you tie me up, you leave. Like that's okay, fine. Yeah. Take whatever you want. Let's go. Let's get this done. Yes. As soon as he got her tied up, he told her, I'm BTK. I'm a bad dude. And then he strangled her with a pair of her own pantyhose. One of the big things for him was seeing the wave of fear and realization that they were going to die come over his victims. Like that look was Mm. one of his big things that he fucking got off on. Yeah. And he also loved that he had a name that could do this. That's why I gave myself a fucking nickname. Fucking dork. Loser. (laughs) Fucking loser. Sick burn on a serial killer, Tasha. (laughs) This time he did not leave his victim in the house. He took her to a rural bridge, posing her, taking photos of her before leaving her there. The next day, Dee's boyfriend reported her missing. Yeah. Sliding glass door fucking shattered and she's gone. Like, mm-hmm. suspicious immediately. Yeah. And so there's a lookout. There's a fucking APB. So Dee's boyfriend reported her missing the next day. All the cops know about it. They're told, be on the lookout. Everybody we stop, suspicious, whatever. Go through their vehicles. Like, everybody had allowance to fuck with everybody. Stop yeah. and frisk. Like, everybody was on their radar supposedly. Rudy Giuliani in fucking Kansas. Full blown. I mean, this woman's missing. Mm -hmm. So Raiders still out Boy Scouting. The next night, he went back to visit Dee's body, leaving the Boy Scouts at their camp out, whatever. That's so weird because he doesn't like normally do that, right? No, yeah, this is is different. It was like Mm -hmm. every other time he left them there. But he did the church thing, which he didn't have to do because that was in a vacant house. And then he did the outside bridge thing. And it maybe was to try other because he was constantly having these fantasies and like writing shit and drawing shit. There was a drawing that he did. I think it was called the Silo of Terror. And he wanted to have a silo and have it full of torture devices, like fully Ed Gein farm and have it full of torture devices. And like, I mean, drew it like the way a little kid would draw a dream house. Yeah. It was very fucked up. So all I'm thinking is that he was like, I want to try this. I want to try this. But the core of it was the fear, intimidation, strangulation. There were key things that were like, this is every time. This is what I do. This is how I do it. Yeah. What a fucking loser piece of shit. Mm. What the fuck? Yeah. Okay. I, I know I'm like, hot take. What a fucking loser. But it's just... Like what? There are there aren't words to describe like the disgust and yeah absolute level that my mind is blown that someone's mm-hmm. mind works this way. 
Yeah. So Raider went back to visit Dee's body on the second night of the Boy Scout campout, and he was even questioned by a cop at a gas station because this thing is out. Everybody's looking for fucking Dee. Yeah. He stops at a gas station on his way back because on his way out there, he changed from his troop leader uniform into his fucking skulking clothes or whatever the fuck. He had a, probably a special outfit that he had a special name for. Mm-hmm. And he stopped at a gas station on the way back to change back into his Boy Scout gear to fucking turn his cube or whatever. And there was a cop there and the cop started talking to him about this missing woman and how they have to Mm -hmm. question people. Meanwhile, he's got her fucking jewelry box, which they were aware was missing. Her Mm -hmm. jewelry box sitting in his Mm -hmm. car. God, it's like right there. This is like, who was it that got, they were either parked out front of a house or they got pulled up. Oh, fucking Jeffrey Dahmer got pulled over with somebody in his fucking trunk. That's right. Yeah. But he was so seemingly normal that the cop didn't suspect him at all and sent him on his way. Didn't even look in his car. Mm. I was like, all right. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck on that. Hope she gets home safe. Yeah. D was by that bridge in that ditch for a total of 10 days before being found. Mm. After that murder... Ray's stalking continued, but with no murders to report. BTK was supposedly not active. Mm -hmm. He did have about 55 projects planned, a full spreadsheet, project names, locations, like routine, their routines and shit. That, well, their routines and then his activity. So it's like tried to make contact, da 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 da, da and he would have a, a meticulous note about it. I mean, it was a lot the way this guy kept notes. And over the years, he had applied to work at the police department, highway patrol, sheriff's department. And fortunately, mm. he didn't get any of those jobs, but mm. he did score a gig as a Park City complaint officer, mm-hmm. which is, it's a dude that goes around nitpicking people about their dogs being off leash and shit. Like, your grass is too long. Like, if anybody yeah. was going to power trip on that fucking gig, it was him. Yeah. And he did. He was a fucking dick about it. Everybody knew it. Mm. Because when he felt there were rules to be followed, he fucking adhered to them and he expected everyone else to adhere to them. Mm-hmm. We're going to majorly fast forward then to January 15th of 2004. This is the 30th anniversary of the Otero family murder. Raider hadn't killed in 13 years, as far as we were aware. So because there's this huge anniversary of this family's death, this unsolved crime, we don't know who this fucking serial killer was that was torturing a city. Yeah. Terrifying a city. Things get run in the paper. It's being talked about. It's the anniversary of this, right? Mm -hmm. And because this shit was in the press... Raider found out that, because of course he read everything, cut out all the articles, anything that he was mentioned, he's going to keep all that shit. Those are just more tokens for him. Yeah. In doing this, he found out that an attorney was writing a book about BTK, you know, chronicling his crimes and the information they had about him, unsolved mysteries kind of shit. Raider's ego did not like this. Oh, yeah, for sure. This is him going, okay, this is bullshit. They only know about seven of my murders. They're not going to get my story right. This is my fucking legacy. Mm -hmm. I need to be heard. This is fucking ego. Ding, 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 ding. On May 10th, 2004, this is a few months later, the Wichita Eagle and Beacon received photocopies of Vicki Wagerly's ID and a photocopied Polaroid of her the day she died. Mm. Along with the images, he sent a letter detailing her murder. They immediately knew that this wasn't a fucking hoax. This wasn't a trick. This wasn't anything. There were no photos taken of her at the crime scene. There were Mm. no photos taken of her at the house because she was being rushed to the hospital. 
It wasn't yeah. a crime scene they were taking of a dead body. He took photos. Yeah. So they knew right away it was somebody who was there for the murder. Her case was unsolved. And remember, this is a person everyone thought was murdered by her, her husband. husband. Yeah. Yeah. Which poor fucking guy, like he didn't, what he probably went through, he probably moved and ugh, Oh, I'm crazy. sure. I didn't, I mean, Vicki Wagerly was murdered in 1986 and this is 2004. This has haunted him for 18 years. He probably didn't mm. even get an opportunity to fully grieve until 2004 because he has this magnifying glass on him. Raising their baby. Ugh. Wonderfully, all of a sudden, Wichita PD formed a task force of police, FBI, and the KBI. Kansas Bureau mm -hmm. of Investigation. Because they're like, this is bullshit. This guy's fucking doing this shit again. We're going to get him this time. This case is being headed up by Lieutenant Ken Landwehr. All right. So he's holding these press conferences with the specific intention of keeping BTK in communication with them in the hopes that he would eventually slip up. FBI profilers knew that this was a game for him. And they were fucking right. They're like, say these specific things. This will keep him on the line with us. This is going to keep him going mm -hmm. back and forth. He wants this attention. You need to say these specific things. Just just like, like what Huang does, you know? Like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly. That's exactly yeah. what they're play, doing. Or play into his vanity or, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, Right. It's like, well, he sent this thing. It was a pretty tough code to crack. I, I, I don't know. I didn't watch the, um, I didn't watch the press conferences, uh, but it would, I would be interested to find out what specifically the FBI profilers were like saying, this is yeah. important to say, this is. Oh, thanks to mind hunters, the Ugh. real ones. Okay. Now this is going to come in in a minute, but at this time, Landwehr was engaging with BTK through the these press conferences and using very carefully curated psychological tactics to keep him drawn mm -hmm. in. It fucking worked. The communication became extremely consistent. Raider would mm -hmm. send tokens, jewelry, clothing that he had kept belonging to the victims. He'd send information to the TV station. Just later that month in May of 2004, he sent a word puzzle to the TV station with clues to his identity. He, again, wanted the power of the risks that he was taking, but it was the risk of it was fun. He literally put his address in the puzzle. Yeah. They they didn't figure it out. In hindsight, they're like, holy shit, that's his fucking house number. And it says mm -hmm. address right there. The mm -hmm. word address was... He was just having a blast. He's having a great fucking time. Mm -hmm. He also had a grandiose sense of being smarter than the police and the public. He could always trick his victims. His whole community was fooled by his regular guy persona and the police could never catch him. Every time he felt like, ooh, they might be on to me. Ooh, I'm cutting it close. Ooh, this thing is risky. And he didn't get caught. That just confirmed over and over mm -hmm. 30 years yeah it had been 30 fucking years in his mind he's untouchable mm. in january of 2005 he sent a message to cake tv that he had a correspondence for them on a cereal box hidden at home depot and so they go they scour it they scour the place nobody found anything until days later when this employee came back from vacation and was like oh yeah there was this cereal box tossed in the bed of my truck uh, somebody had written BTK bomb on it. I figured it was a joke. So I just took it home and tossed it. Like this guy didn't, <laughs> he didn't hear the fucking news. He probably went fishing and was like, what the fuck? People throwing trash in my shit. Jesus. So police got the surveillance tape from the parking lot. They're like, mm -hmm. well, at least we can maybe get something out of it. They got the surveillance tape. And although they couldn't see him because that's not how surveillance footage works, SVU, <laughs> they were able to make out that he drove a dark colored Jeep Cherokee. Mm -hmm. Just put that in the notes. That seems so serial killery to me to have a dark 
cheap Cherokee for some reason. I'm like, of course he has that. Of course It could be literally any car and I'd probably be like, of course. At the same time, I mean, this this shit's going quick. In comparison to 30 years, this is there's a few months. Raider decides he wants to be communicating with police directly. Skip the letters and press conference shit. Like, we're kind of friends, you guys. Let's just, let's have this be us for just a bit. Yeah. Yeah, he still wants the public recognition and the attention. But in his mind, they're all doing this, okay? They're on the same page with him. Yeah, it's like a game for all of them, he thinks. Yeah, they're all playing a game. This is fun for everybody. Yeah. Because remember, the way that the lieutenant is communicating through the press conference, like, come find me. <laughs> there are specialists. Yeah. His downfall is whatever the fuck goes on in the brain of a serial killer and the level of his delusion. But also that you are up against people that analyze every single th- word. Genius thing people who yeah. work for the fucking FBI that do nothing but pick apart criminal personality types and how your fucking mind works and you're falling for it. So he wants to have this one-on-one with them, but he doesn't want to be traced. So he's so fucking delusional. He sends them a note saying, quote, can I communicate with floppy? Like he means a floppy disk. Can I communicate with floppy and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. (laughs) God. Be honest, you guys. (laughs) He wanted them to answer by running an ad in the paper saying, Rex, it will be okay. Again, this is a game. We're all having fun. We're all on the same page. And they're like, hell yeah, buddy. Fucking scout's honor for sure. And they place the ad. Rex, it's going to be okay. Dude, when they did that, they were probably like, I can't believe this. This this can't work. There's no fucking way this is going to. But maybe it's one step closer. Maybe we can Mm -hmm. figure out. Like, they had extra meetings that could have been an email based on, okay, what could possibly happen? And how are we going to handle it? So they place this ad. He sees it, is delighted, and right away he sent a test file floppy disk to the station. Like, is this going to work, you guys? They go, all right, well, hey, fucking IT guy. Hey, Jason, you take a look at this. Their computer guy, their IT guy, was immediately able to pull the metadata, which whatever that means, he knows, I don't. It's just the whole history of this fucking floppy disk. Okay, so he found the whole history. And what he found was that it had been used a couple places, but... It had been used at Christ Lutheran Church, and to that portion of it was a name attached, Dennis. A quick, slick, tiny little search shows them the president of the church is named Dennis Rader. Cops are like, this can't be... I wonder how long it was before they were like, this can't be this easy. This can't be... What a fucking idiot. This is a fucking, this has got to be a, this guy has eluded capture for 30 years. Yeah, but you know what? You know how it is too when you're like older, you're getting older and the technology changes and you don't know how it works. Like it was easier in the 70s and 80s for him to get away with stuff because they didn't have For sure. Like I that. mean, he was so yeah. careful about fingerprints and all this other stuff. But the main thing, I'll get there, but the main thing wasn't that he didn't understand the technology. The main thing is that he's like, we're friends and I be honest. I I told you to be honest yeah. and I trust you yeah. because we're friends. Yeah. We're on the same page here. Nobody gets us. It's us, you guys. <laughs> and they're like, you're a fucking murderer. Yeah. And a sadist. You're a fucking psychopath, dude. Yeah. All I'm saying is these cops are like, this has got to be a dead end. This has got to be a fucking trick. He loves riddles and puzzles. There's no fucking way. This he's isn't going to the- throw us off to some other guy. Yeah. He's not going to take us from trying to crack the nuclear codes to the first level of Candy Crush. That's no- There's no fucking <laughs> way. 
<laughs> yeah. But here they are. They fucking go to Dennis Rader's house and they see his Jeep Cherokee parked out front. They're like, no fucking way. But they don't want to do anything until they get DNA. This doesn't even make sense. So they leave. They've got Dennis Rader on 24-hour surveillance because mm -hmm. not on their watch. They get a court order for Kansas State where his daughter had gone to school, right? Mm -hmm. They get access to a pap smear that she had performed five years prior. That's so fucked up to me. Yeah. A, I didn't know that they kept pap smears for five, that they just kept them, period. Yeah, I don't know. B, I just don't, I feel like it's, that it feels really violating to me. I mean, of course. Great, it's great because he's a fucking killer and stuff, but still, it's like. I would say the violation would be your dad had a second life of being a very prolific serial killer your whole life. For sure. But no, I it totally just, get what you mean. Something like, in my tummy feels weird. I'm like, ugh, I don't. I yeah. don't like that. But. Like, why are you dragging her into it? But right. they're like a little lower on my list of people I have critiques for in this story. Of but I get, I, I get exactly yeah. what, you, what you mean. It's like, why were they waiting outside somebody's house to go through their trash? And then they went and got a warrant for his daughter's. I mean, in 2004, Munch got a box of fucking noodles a guy was eating out of the trash can and got DNA. Yeah. You know what I mean? I wonder if there, there might be a You had to go all the way to his daughter's perhaps mirror. I, I wonder just, if there might be a funny. different law in Kansas, though, about how you access DNA. I mean, I don't know. I bet you if that was a law that it was okay to do that then, I bet you it's not now. Oh, yeah. Because that's fucking just weird to me. Mm -hmm. I don't look into but it. But DNA stuff was like pretty new, you know, ish. As far as the public knew, yeah. So they send it to the lab. They run the DNA from this pap smear against DNA collected from the old crime scenes. They've got fingernail fucking scrapings. They've got semen from every crime scene, basically. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't something he was worried about in the 70s. Nobody knew that. Yeah. And it's cool that they saved it, not realizing that in the future, science would catch up. It's wild that they... It makes me think some, they, somebody knew something higher up. There was some sort of time travel. Or maybe travel. it was just because it was like... <laughs> time trip. I it, don't know. It, it, it could just be because it was physical evidence, period, that they just kept it. But it's just... Yeah. But to be able to preserve it, too. It, yeah, that's what I was saying, to keep it... Preserve it. The DNA know. didn't break down to where they couldn't, you know? Mm -hmm. hmm. That is another mystery. Regardless, they test these two things against each other. Proving the sample is the daughter of BTK. Mm -hmm. On February 25th, 2005, Dennis Rader was pulled over on his way home from his office. It was one vehicle, but then he was immediately surrounded. I mean, it was a huge takedown. Mm -hmm. Once in cuffs, he calmly said, would you mind telling my wife I won't be home for lunch? I assume you know where I live. Jeez. He could not believe that they had lied to him about the floppy disk. <laughs> he was, he even said, he felt like he deserved more respect than that. He couldn't believe it. To this day, to the, la to the last How fucking- How dare you? Mm -hmm. Wow. I thought we were closer than that, Lieutenant. I guess that's what you're going to have to be thinking about when you lay your head on your pillow at night. And the you guy's know? like, <laughs> right? <laughs> He's like, I'm you're, sorry, what? I've, this is the first good night's sleep I've gotten in a while, you fucking piece of shit. Fucking 30 years, dude. Shoo, <laughs> <laughs> shoo. <laughs> 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 
Okay, so he gets arrested. They're like, we fucking have your DNA. We very much know who you are. He told police that most of his notes and filings were in his office at work. He had a filing cabinet mm-hmm. with meticulously organized notes, original correspondence, because he always sent Xeroxes. So initially, I guarantee he was sending Xeroxes because he wanted to keep the originals. The OG. He, yeah. Yeah. Everything was dated. Everything was categorized. Anything that a fucking... God, I bet you he would just like relax and fucking open these books and just kind of like go through them like he's reading. Just like mm-hmm. reading a good book. It's like fucking creepy. I mean, it was constantly reliving these crimes, building this fantasy, constantly escaping to it. Yeah. Another thing they found were more Polaroids. They found Polaroids of what they first thought were male victims and mm-hmm. took them to him. And they're like, who the fuck are these dudes? And he's like, dudes, that's me. Uh, they were photos that he had taken with a tripod and self-portrait set up. In the photos, he'd be tied up wearing this fucking scary mask. Scary mask with makeup on it, a wig and items he'd stolen from his victims, slips, underwear, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And he'd be tied up and shit. This was him again, acting out these sexual fantasies. I don't know when, I guarantee the cops probably called his wife right away. Mm. His wife and kids, when they found out, couldn't fucking believe it. Yeah. Like, They believe they had an idyllic upbringing. Just can you imagine just the stun in your body? Yeah. So his wife requested an emergency divorce. There's normally a 60 day waiting period in Kansas. It was the shortest divorce probably in fucking ever, ever history. It was like five minutes. The judge was immediately like, absolutely, stamp or whatever happens. Paula has never spoken publicly and has not had any contact with him since. Period. Their son, Brian, has also never spoken publicly and keeps a super low profile. There's Mm -hmm. nothing to be found about him. He doesn't share anything. And I mean, that's a route that I feel like a lot of people would take. It's heartbreaking. Mm. His daughter, Carrie, on the other hand, held on to a relationship with her dad for a very long time. She even published a book in 2019 called A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. But then... I read as of 2021, she had publicly shared she'd filed a no contact order against Dennis Rader and will no longer be in communication with him. So he only has access to a telephone and pen and paper in his cell. Yeah. He doesn't have access to the internet or anything, but he has like any serial killer, people fucking standing him and, and writing him shit. People were like internet stalking her and shit on his behalf. And she fucking said no way and realized he's just sick and she's currently order of protection not having contact with him okay on june 27th 2005 this is legit a year and a half after the 30th anniversary when he was like i need attention again good he goes before a judge pleads guilty and gave a deadpan and unnerving account of his crimes he's like uh yeah i'm pleading guilty and the judge is like are you pleading guilty because of a fucking deal or are you pleading guilty because you're guilty and he's like oh i'm guilty and then went on and on about mm. what he had done. He's now housed in El Dorado Correctional Facility in El Dorado, Kansas, serving 10 consecutive life sentences. The death penalty wasn't on the books during his crimes. Mm-hmm. And it's still unknown if there are more crimes he has committed, but experts say that it's very common for serial killers, even those who've confessed in detail, to keep secrets for themselves. So we may never know, but there are other things with his MO in surrounding areas. Remember, he traveled for work. He traveled to different states and shit. Mm-hmm. He had fucking hit kits and fucking hidey holes and fucking whatever all over. 
Yeah. So would I be surprised to learn that there were more in between these long periods where he was inactive, seven years, 13 years, whatever these chunks were? I would definitely not be surprised. And I would hope that people would be able to find that out before he dies. He's like 78 now. So yeah. Well, fuck that guy. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in there that I didn't know. I, mm -hmm. I don't th I thought I knew more about him, but I don't. I didn't. I thought I did too. I was like, all right, I'm just going to crank this out. Hence me not being able to fucking sleep at night. Yeah. So. Oh, that's right. You're like, I didn't want to put my, my I, I, I didn't want my hand. I don't want to put my hand over the edge of my bed. The other day when you were like, let me move in. Let me live under your bed. All I thought about was, oh my God, I can't deal with you fucking with me like that. I can't deal <laughs> with like, like <sighs> <laughs> is that Gabe or did a serial killer come in, murder my best friend who lives under my bed and take her place? I would make you hold my hand till I fell asleep. <laughs> I have two children. Actually, I'd, I'd be on the ground going like this, like, play with me here. <laughs> Next week, we have season six, episode five, Outcry. A missing teen is found and she tells the gang that she was kept prisoner by three dudes in uniforms. But from what I'm reading, it sounds like they don't really believe her. I roll, I roll, I roll. Okay. Mm -hmm. Rate and review us, guys. Email us at svupod at gmail.com. If you want to send us stuff, you totally can. I mean, you don't have to, but we love it. P.O. Box 176 to Forest, Wisconsin, 53532. And check out our Instagram at svupod. We got all kinds of merch, too. We got all kinds of merch. Go to svupod.com. You can go to our shop, and there'll be a link to our Tee Public there. Or mm -hmm. you can just go directly to Tee Public and search us. Yeah. Join the Facebook group, SVU Pod Elite Squad. We have a chat group on there called Walk and Talk and a book club called Single Tomato. Hashtag Little Bit Loud to find indie pods. And if you are an indie pod, hashtag your shit with Little Bit Loud so other people can find you. And join the Patreon. We have a shit ton of fucking content on there. So much more than you would want. You actually wouldn't want it. It's the Streganona of content. It's just <laughs> spaghetti ears. <laughs> <laughs> also send us ghost stories and call or text us and leave us your questions stories and comments if you want shitty advice fucking call in tempting the number is 1-920-345-7005 again 1-920-345-7005 love you bye love you bye what i was like yeah <laughs> <laughs> And then you moved on, and I wish I would have just let you. Yeah. Uh, loud hot man. I'll have the loud hot man. They asked Nathan Lane. Akuna Matata. That's not. <laughs> Keep going. She's put on a gurner and keeps telling them. A gurney. What did I say? You said a gurner. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> What's a gurner? Got an R. They gurner. put around a gurner. <laughs> Roll around to the herb alerts. <laughs> Gersh Mork. That's another one of those things that we thought would never not be funny. I know. We still think it's funny. It's not. Remember the ones that were like, church burger. Mork. <laughs> Perturters. Oh, Spurgy merbles. I hope you let me suck your dick. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> and to our Elite Squad patrons, Sonia W, Marissa M, LKH, Annie G, Mary D, Andrew, Andrew, Rebecca D, Miranda B, Shelby W, Lex, Emily T, Kayla W, Mallory G, Bonita R, Marin, Marin. 
Vanessa, Melanie G, Courtney W, Ursula S, Kate H, Uyana, Kayla J, Catherine M, Kate P, Jessica S, Nicole M, Acacia V, Katarina G, Danielle W, Kelsey D, Jana M, Joshua H, Tammy J, <laughs> Bear, Bear, Crystal. What did you say before about the Katarina G? You were like the Katarina wine mixer. Oh, yeah. That's what I always think of. Katarina wine. Yeah. It's the fucking Katarina wine mixer. G. <laughs> Crystal, uh, Lucy M, Trisha S, Sam D, Mac Attack, Casey W, Abby W, Alexis J, Lauren T, Kaylin B, Camille Z, Nisha G, Maggie D, Kaylin, Kaylin. Ugh. Shut up. Katie M, Eliza W, Crystal B, Jessica P, Zan and J, Nada M, San, Christina D, Madison H, Emily, gonna ride my horse to the old town road. (laughs) That was a minute to get there, but you gotta commit, you know? Victoria B, Scout G, Melissa M, Desiree D, Drew, beep, 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 beep. Amberly C, Sapphire. Monica K, Katie S, Trish S, Angela D, Miranda B, Al H, Nikki R, Aunt Sarah J, Caitlin S, Emily D, Katie H, Lexi Y, Nikki R, Vanessa B, and Jenna B. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, yeah. thanks. Okay. Pod. Yeah. <laughs> SVU. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> SVU patrons, everybody have you. <laughs> okay. Uh, love you. Bye. Pick them up. All right. We got to go. <laughs> Bye.